Hello, everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and tonight's story may arguably be one of the most prolifically retold Victorian true crime stories of all time. It has inspired plays, publications, music, films. I mean, it must be a wild story to stand the test of time like that, right? It even includes a bit of a supernatural twist. This is the story of the Red Barn murder. But first, a Victorian society tip. Tonight's tip is how to live more like a Victorian in the year 2024. We'll start with some things that you can do in the spirit of leading a more Victorian lifestyle. First, we are going to get very dressed up to go nowhere or everywhere. Never leave your house without being dressed up. It was not uncommon for a wealthy Victorian woman to change clothes at least four or five times a day, depending on her social calendar or even for dining in her own home. And I think if you want, you should mimic this. I'm not saying put on a ball gown to stream Netflix, but maybe get dressed for the day more often. However, if you want to be very Victorian about it, maybe try incorporating a bit of silk or lace into your wardrobe. Maybe even add a cape or gloves. Bonus points if you bring back wearing brooches. Similarly, Victorians were very concerned with their personal care routines. Some ideas for translating this into goals for ourselves today are to maybe just establish a routine, even just one step. One source I found for a 12-step Victorian wake-up routine lists things such as waking up early, drinking a cup of warm water, washing your face, and five minutes of physical exercise. Surely we can pick one of those 12 to help ourselves become more Victorian in 2024. Like personal care, we also know Victorians were very concerned with how they presented to the outside world, and this included the appearance of their home. Believe me, I am not suggesting we start trying to adhere to Victorian standards of housekeeping, but maybe we commit to one thing to better our living space. For example, Victorians loved fresh flowers. Maybe you could resolve to bring more fresh flowers into your home. Some ideas of things you could do for free, though, might be to resolve to make your bed in the morning or regularly sweep your entryways. We also know that etiquette and manners were of the utmost importance to Victorians. In this day and age, though, trying to uphold Victorian manners could come back to bite you, but I think there are a few tried and true adages that we can all agree still likely apply. Like, arrive on time, use a turn signal, cover your mouth when you cough. Likewise, I found one article that attempted to explain how to generally exist in modern polite society, and I did come across a few gems I think we should all get behind, such as, if your host is doing the dishes, it means it's time to leave the party. And actually, it's great to talk about the weather. Also, when casually asked how you are, say good. And finally, if you bring up astrology and it isn't met enthusiastically, change the topic. So far, all of these tips have been how you can live a more Victorian-inspired life. But what if you want to literally live more like a Victorian in 2024? Well, one idea is to pick up a new Victorian hobby. Some ideas include painting and watercolors, reading, gardening, perhaps starting a new collection, Some Victorian favorites included shells, autographs, stamps, silver spoons, or postcards, and finally, taking up scrapbooking or journaling. The last tip is to introduce more Victorian pastimes. Attend more plays, plan more picnics, and as often as you can, wherever you go, suggest a rousing game of charades. (music) 
Just quickly, I do want to wish everyone a happy new year. I hope you all enjoyed a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season with your loved ones. In our house, it's a bit of a roll of the dice if we're healthy from week to week, so I have had not quite as much time for the podcast lately as I may like, but to be honest, it's 2024. I think we're done glamorizing the grind and the hustle. I just want to drop in a little acknowledgement that episodes have not been super regular lately, but that is no indication of the future of the podcast. I love researching these stories and sharing them with you, and I'm going to continue. I do have a new Patreon member to welcome. Hello and welcome to Mattia. Thank you so much for your support. I am so glad you're here. Now, let's get into our story. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. William Corder was born on June 21, 1801 in Polston, Suffolk, England, where his family owned and operated a farm. So far as I can tell, he had at least two other brothers, of which he was the second eldest. In true middle child fashion, it seems he was often overlooked by his parents and was known in his youth to be a bit of a prankster. As he grew older, though, he became more of a troublemaker, earning himself the nickname Foxy in school for being sly and mischievous. In truth, William had aspirations of becoming a teacher or a journalist, but his father refused to support what he deemed frivolous dreams. So, being interested in little else, as a young man, William gained a reputation for being an outright fraudster and ladies' man. In one instance, he fraudulently arranged the sale of his father's pigs, intending to pocket the money for himself. This was kind of the last straw for William's family, and his father sent him away to London. It sounds like the intention was for William to join the military, but due to poor eyesight, he was rejected. William did stay a time in London, though, though it seemed his only intention was to fritter away the money his father had given him. And when that ran out, he began fraternizing with some of London's criminal underworld. In the winter of 1825, though, when William was 21, he was sent for to return home to Polston. His father and two brothers had contracted tuberculosis, and his family was in need of his support to manage the farm. So, William goes, and it's in the months that follow that William is said to have met Maria Martin. It's actually extremely likely that William already knew of Maria, though. Maria, born in 1801, making her only about two years older than William, had also grown up in Polstead. Though her parents were not wealthy landowners like the Quarters, her father was the town mole catcher. The reason I say it's extremely likely that William was already acquainted with Maria, despite the social gap, is because Maria had already had a child about five years prior with William's older brother, Thomas. The child, who was born out of wedlock, did not survive, though. Maria had a second child in 1824, this time by a man named Peter Matthews. Matthews was a member of the gentry who only occasionally visited family in Polstead and had no interest in marrying Maria nor raising the child. So he instead sent monthly support for the boy. That winter, when William returned home, his father did die of tuberculosis, and his two brothers, who were so weakened from the illness, became all but invalid. This pretty much made William the man of the house, as he was the only able-bodied man left to run the farm. It's early 1826 when William and Maria enter into the relationship, but William wishes to keep the relationship a secret. The couple would often meet at a local landmark known as the Red Barn for Triss. In the summer of 1826, Maria informs William that she believes she is pregnant. Now, Maria and her family were hopeful that William would do the right thing and marry her. He was finally out from under his father's thumb, after all, and had all but taken over managing the family farm. And, much to the Martin family's delight, I'd imagine, William agrees. He will marry Maria. 
but he's worried about the blowback from the local townspeople. So he says he'll come up with a plan to leave with Maria and be married elsewhere. Then, when the heat dies down, he'll return and live on his family's farm with her and raise their children. Maria and her family accept this plan and wait for further instructions. But details are not forthcoming, unfortunately. And all the while, Maria's pregnancy is progressing. Maria keeps reminding William the longer they wait to be married, the harder it will be to pass off the child as legitimate. She is starting to suspect that maybe William does not intend on seeing his plan through. The next winter, in February of 1827, William's older brother Thomas tragically falls through the ice on a frozen pond and dies. William has been acting as the primary owner of the farm for a while, but now that his older brother has passed, he also becomes the legal owner as well. And now, Maria really turns a dial up on pressuring William to marry her. The next month, March of 1827, Maria gives birth to her and William's son. Due to the fact that they are not yet married, the family keeps the birth a secret. However, the child is not healthy and dies a short while later. No one is quite sure what is done with the baby. Some say that William took the baby and arranged a burial. Others say the burial was quietly handled locally by the family, but there doesn't seem to be any surviving public record of what happened to William and Maria's young son. Now, William has the opportunity to make the same choice his older brother did years before, which is to say that since there is no child, he is not obligated to marry Maria. But he does not choose this route. Instead, he asserts that he will marry Maria. But due to the difference in their social standings, the fact that he just became a very eligible bachelor by inheriting the farm, and that Maria's pregnancy had not gone entirely unnoticed by the people in town, he says he still wishes to travel outside the area with Maria to be married. Finally, he comes up with a plan. He says he's made arrangements for he and Maria to travel to Ipswich, a town about 16 miles away, to be married. About a month and a half goes by when on May 18, 1827, William presents himself at the Martins' cottage and tells Maria that it's time to go and that they have to hurry because he has heard that the local constable has obtained a warrant to prosecute Maria for the crime of bastardry, which means giving birth to a child out of wedlock for which the punishment is public whipping. Maria protests that they can't leave in broad daylight or they'll surely be spotted. William tells Maria to dress in men's clothing and meet him at the Red Barn, their old hookup spot, where he will meet her with a bag of her own clothes. She can change there, and together they'll travel on to Ipswich together in secret. They'll send word to her family once they've arrived safely. William relates this to Maria in front of her stepmother Anne, who hastily helps her stepdaughter pack a bag while she disguises herself in men's clothing. The two leave separately, and it will unfortunately be the last that anyone will ever see Maria alive again. William also disappeared from Polstead for a time as well, but returned a few months later as he had to deal with the now-failing family farm situation. But what of Maria, her family asked. Were they married? Was she well? William assured them that she was well, but their marriage had been delayed, which is why she could not accompany him back to Polstead just yet. Over the course of the next few months, no one heard directly from Maria. William related that she'd been unwell for a short while, then hurt her hand and couldn't write, then asserted she had for sure sent a letter recently. Perhaps it had been lost. Don't worry, he said, though. They'd recently been married, and they were happily living on the Isle of Wight. But without hearing from Maria herself, no one could really be sure. And over time, the Martin family grew more and more certain that something had happened to Maria. By April of 1828, William had not been back to Polstead for some time, nor had the Martins received any correspondence from him or Maria. It was about this time that Anne, Maria's stepmother, approached her husband and encouraged him to go investigate the Red Barn for clues as to what could have happened to his daughter. 
At first, her father thought this was ridiculous. It had been nearly a year now that they'd made their escape. What could he possibly hope to find now? This is when Anne confesses something to her husband. She tells him that she's been having dreams. For the past three nights in a row now, she dreamt that William did something to hurt Maria and left her there in that red barn. At first, she was afraid to tell him for fear he thinks she'd become superstitious. But she felt quite sure that if he went there, he'd find some clue or even perhaps Maria herself. In fact, she'd actually been having these dreams since about Christmas time that past December. So Maria's father goes to the barn and he uses his mole spike, which is a tool he used to search the earth for mole tunnels. And he finds something. He finds a soft spot in the earth in the floor of the barn. He digs slowly into the earth where he uncovers a burlap sack. And inside the sack, he finds a badly decomposed body. Maria's father stops what he's doing immediately and runs to alert the authorities. The authorities step in to complete the search where they uncover a body with what appears to be a gunshot wound under one eye, stab wounds, and a green handkerchief around its face. Maria Martin's sister identifies the body as Maria by some hair still attached to the scalp, a gap in her teeth, and some jewelry. That green handkerchief is known to have belonged to William Corder. In some versions of this story, it said Maria was found buried in a grain bin, though if that were the case, I'm unsure how she would have gone unnoticed for so long. Either way, officials issue a warrant for the arrest of William and set out to find him. To no one's surprise, he was no longer living at his last known address anymore, but fortunately, it was not difficult to find him. Officials found William living in West London. Since departing Polstead that day in May of 1827, it seems like William wasted no time setting up a new life for himself. He had placed Lonely Heart ads, or what we today call personal ads, in the Times, the Morning Herald, and the Sunday Times newspapers seeking a wife. He received nearly 200 responses, but the one who stood out to him was a woman named Miss Mary Moore. William and Miss Moore were married that past December, hardly six months after his elopement with Maria, and two months after he'd informed Maria's family that he and Maria had in fact been married. Interesting. Together, they were running a ladies' boarding house in Brentwood, London. One inspector gained entry to the boarding house under the guise of wishing to board his daughter there. He surprised William, quote, in parlor with four ladies at breakfast in dressing gown and had a watch before him by which he was minuting the boiling of some eggs. When the inspector took him aside to ask him if he was familiar with the name Maria Martin, William responded, I never knew any such person, even by name. Upon searching the premise, though, they found two pistols and a French passport. I'm not sure what that has to do with the crime he's suspected of, but in 1828, they seemed to think that was enough evidence to suggest he was preparing to flee, presumably because he had committed murder, and they brought him in. He was brought back to the rural county of Suffolk, where he would await trial in July. In the meantime, the story of the murder, stepmother's dreams, and the discovery of the body spread like wildfire. People were obsessed. Maria's funeral was held the day after the discovery of her body and was attended by hundreds. Theatrical productions sprang up all over the country, musicians performed ballads, and numerous broadsides were published, all covering the story. The sensational coverage, though, often morphed William into a lecherous old man who preyed upon an innocent, naive country girl. In truth, though, while they were separated by class, William was only guilty of petty crime, and Maria had already given birth to two other children out of wedlock, an offense that most of society would deem unforgivable. The press was happy enough to ignore these details, though, in favor of a more compelling narrative painting William as the ruthless villain and Maria as the innocent victim. 
This, plus the eerie supernatural aspect of the body's discovery, drove crowds to the rural county of Suffolk by the thousands as the trial neared. Inns were booked solid for weeks. The barn was dismantled piece by piece by souvenir hunters, even to the extent of the wood being turned into toothpicks to be sold. Maria's gravestone was even chipped away and carried off until there was nothing left. Officials realized they were not prepared for such crowds, so they pushed back the trial date to the first week in August and arranged ticket sales to attend. On the first day of the trial, thousands of people gathered outside the courthouse. The crowds were so dense that the judge, jurors, and other officials had to bodily push and shove their way into the courthouse. Once everyone was finally inside, though, the trial could begin. Due to the state of the body, a cause of death could not be established. For this reason, William was indicted on, quote, murdering Maria Martin by feloniously and willfully shooting her with a pistol through the body and likewise stabbing her with a dagger. There were also nine other charges listed against him in the event that the murder charge did not stick. The star witness was Maria's stepmother, Anne Martin. Some sources say she gave testimony regarding her dreams, others say she did not. Either way, she hardly needed to, as she was witness to the pair's plans to flee to Ipswich. Maria's 10-year-old brother also witnessed William that day with a loaded pistol on him and later carrying a pickaxe toward the barn, which we presume was to bury the body. Further testimony uncovered that William had stolen some money from Maria sent to her by the father of her child, as well as alleging that William's criminal involvement was a constant source of tension between them. Further, the prosecution stated that it was obvious William never wanted nor intended to marry Maria. He only wanted her out of the way, and that is why he killed her. William's defense, by comparison, was weak. He stated that they had fled to the Red Barn, but once there, they argued, and somehow Maria managed to get his gun and had shot herself. He then panicked and buried the body. Reading from a written statement, William added, By that powerful engine, the press, which regulates the opinion of so many persons in this country, and which is too often, I fear, though unintentionally, the slanderer and destroyer of innocence, I have had the misfortune to be depicted in the most humiliated, revolting characters. I have been described by the press as the most depraved of human monsters. Which is to say he blames the media for portraying him as guilty. He's not entirely wrong. It does not seem this statement invoked any pity, though, as it took jurors only 35 minutes to return a verdict of guilty. During the sentencing, the judge said, My advice to you is not to flatter yourself with the slightest hope of mercy on earth. He went on to say that you be taken back to the prison from whence you came and that you be taken from thence on Monday next to a place of execution and your body should afterwards be dissected and autonomized and may the Lord Almighty of his infinite goodness have mercy on your soul. I mean, yikes. Usually, this is the part where I go, so they were executed and buried in the prison cemetery. But that dissected part of the sentence is more than we've encountered in 35 episodes of A Good Night for a Murder so far. So, let's take the opportunity for some education. Remember, the year is 1828. The Murder Act of 1751 stated that the sentence for murder should include, quote, some further terror and peculiar mark of infamy to be added to the punishment, and that in no case whatsoever shall the body of any murderer be suffered to be buried. This further terror came in two flavors, dissection by medical colleges, often on public display, or gibbeting, which is hanging in chains. In this option, the body of the executed criminal will be put in a cage and hung for public display. Sometimes they were hung while alive and left to die of starvation and exposure. You may have seen this depicted in pirate movies, for example. The reasoning for this is threefold. First, it was meant as a deterrent to would-be criminals. 
Second, it was meant to further disgrace and humiliate the criminal. To take apart a body for dissection meant there would be no chance at giving that person a proper burial and final resting place. Many religious beliefs upheld that a proper burial was necessary for a peaceful afterlife, so the thought was to deny them that. The third reason was that medical students needed human cadavers to study. Medical schools had been springing up in earnest for the past 50 years or so in England, and the only way these doctors were going to learn about the human body was by opening them up and having a peek inside. This is generally a less than savory topic for our modern sensibilities, but the reasoning is hard to argue with. Officials recognized this need for cadavers, so they decreed that medical colleges could have the bodies of executed criminals to study. There were not enough executed criminals to go around, of course, but that's a topic for another episode. So, William Quarter is sentenced to death by hanging, followed by dissection, to be carried out on August 11, 1828. On August 10, 1828, he issues his confession. It reads, I acknowledge being guilty of the death of poor Maria Martin by shooting her with a pistol. The particulars are as follows. When we left her father's house, we began quarreling about the burial of the child. She apprehending that the place wherein it was deposited would be found out. The quarrel continued for about three quarters of an hour upon this and other subjects. A scuffle ensued, and during the scuffle, and at the time I think that she had hold of me, I took the pistol from my side pocket of my velveteen jacket and fired. She fell and died in an instant. I never even saw a struggle. I was overwhelmed with agitation and dismay. The body fell near the front doors on the floor of the barn. A vast quantity of blood issued from the wound and ran onto the floor and through the crevices. Having determined to bury the body in the barn about two hours after she was dead, I went and borrowed the spade of Mrs. Stowe. But before I went there, I dragged the body from the barn into the chaff house and locked up the barn. I returned again to the barn and began digging the hole, but the spade being a bad one and the earth being firm and hard, I was obliged to go home for a pickaxe and a better spade with which I dug the hole and then buried the body. I think I dragged the body by the handkerchief that was tied round the neck. It was dark when I finished covering up the body. I went the next day and washed the blood from the barn floor. I declared to Almighty God that I had no sharp instrument about me and that no other wound but the one made by the pistol was inflicted by me. I have been guilty of great idleness and at times led a dissolute life, but I hope through the mercy of God to be forgiven. We'll talk more about whether or not we believe his confession in a few moments, though. On the day of his execution, crowds numbering into the thousands gathered. Some reported it to be near 7,000, others so high as 20,000. As per usual with these stories, the truth is likely somewhere in the middle. As William stood with legs trembling on the gallows, he gave his last words, which were, I am guilty, my sentence is just, I deserve my fate, and may God have mercy on my soul. After an hour, the body was cut down and taken back to the courtroom, where the abdomen was slit open to expose the muscles, and people were allowed to file past to view it for the next six hours. It's been reported that nearly 5,000 people queued to view the remains. Several copies of a death mask were made, which, if you don't know, is a cast, usually in wax or plaster, of the decedent's face made post-mortem. An autopsy and dissection was then performed in front of an audience of physicians and medical students from Cambridge University. During this, it was discussed if he had actually suffocated during his execution, but in the end they decided it was pressure on the spinal cord that had caused his death. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound like how they usually intended humane executions to go. Further, a galvanized battery was brought in and the team experimented with using the battery to contract the muscles. 
Sources say they were unable to examine the brain, but a detailed phrenological study was conducted. Phrenology was the idea that certain lumps or bumps on your skull corresponded to certain personality traits. Nowadays, it's recognized as pure pseudoscience based on racism and sexism, but a lot of quote-unquote doctors in the 19th century tried hard to make it happen. Unsurprisingly, they found that William Corder's phrenological examination showed that his skull was well-developed in the areas indicating secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, philoprogenitiveness, and imitativeness, with little evidence of benevolence or veneration. A bust detailing their findings was also made as a future study aid. His skeleton was reassembled and used as a teaching aid in the West Suffolk Hospital. His skull, however, was purchased, or possibly stolen, by one Dr. John Kilner, who had already purchased Quarter's scalp. However, he's said to have had a run of extremely bad luck after acquiring the skull, which led him to providing a proper Christian burial for it. If this is true or not, is anyone's guess. What's more, William Quarter's skin was tanned and used to bind a book containing an account of the murder and trial. When I learned about this, it had me screaming because apparently it is quite a bit more common than one would have thought. From anthropodermicbooks.org, who up until 2019 was seeking to verify the true origin of alleged anthropodermic books, anthropodermic bibliopegy, or books bound in human skin, are some of the most mysterious and misunderstood books in the world's libraries and museums. The historical reasons behind their creation vary. 19th century doctors made them as personal keepsakes for their book collections or at the request of the state to further punish executed prisoners. From about 2015 to 2019, they identified 50 alleged anthropodermic books in museums, libraries, and personal collections, completed testing of 31 of them, and confirmed that 18 are indeed bound in human skin. Wild. William's widow, Mary, sold the glasses he wore at the trial along with a snuff box with the likeness of Maria, as well as a few other personal artifacts. More of William's possessions, as well as the death mask replica, the book, and his scalp, made their way to the Moyes Hall Museum in the Suffolk town of Bury St. Edmunds. The skeleton was relocated to the Hunterarian Museum in the Royal College of Surgeons of England until 2004 when descendants of William Corder, after five years of lobbying, succeeded in having the skeleton removed and cremated. A 2004 article on BBC News stated that the descendants planned to bury the ashes in a special ceremony in the same cemetery his victim Maria Martin is buried in, which is the St. Mary Churchyard in Polstead, Suffolk, England. I can't confirm if that indeed actually happened, but there are approximately 1 million cemeteries all over England. Maybe let's not put him right nearby where his victim rests. Something about that just does not sit right with me. Anyway, the descendants do actually agree William was the villain in this story, but opinions vary on if the most widely accepted version of events that I told here is actually the truth or not. As mentioned before, the whole thing reads more like a scripted drama rather than reality. What with the seduction of the young country girl by the wealthy landowner, the mysterious dreams that reveal the location of the body? It's crazy, right? If we really want to look at the full picture here, we have to discuss those dreams of Maria's stepmother Anne. Do we actually believe that she dreamed the location of the body? Or is there something else going on here? There is a theory that William and Anne were in on this together. The theory does not deny that William killed her, but it does call his alleged confession into question. In his confession, he stated he fired his gun during a scuffle which killed Maria. The theory involving Anne is that Anne and William were actually lovers. 
Anne was Maria's father's second wife, and she was much younger than her husband. Some sources say that Anne was only a year older than Maria, but I looked up findagrave.com records and found that at the time of the murder, Maria was 27, William was 24, but Anne was only 38. Not a terribly significant age gap. What's more, Anne said she'd actually been having these dreams since December, which is the same month that William started his life over and married Mary Moore. What if the plan had been to get Maria out of the way for Anne and William to elope? Anne was present the day William came to their cottage with a plan to escape to the Red Barn. She even helped her pack. William had told her there was a warrant to prosecute Maria for being an unwed mother, but that turned out to be not true. Did he lie or was he just mistaken? It could have all been a ploy to get Maria to the Red Barn where he'd dispose of her and then run off with Anne. However, when Anne eventually learned that William was not going to marry her either, in fact, he'd gone and married someone else, she devised a plan to take him down, and she was like, you know what? I know where Maria's body is. Yep, totally been dreaming it for months. If that was her plan, it would seem to have worked. Granted, William himself never offered this by way of explanation, but maybe he had his reasons for keeping quiet. Maybe he truly cared for Anne. Maybe he knew it wouldn't save him anyway. Who knows? I personally, though, think this is a pretty plausible theory. I don't know how or why Anne knew where Maria's body was, but I am super skeptical that she dreamt it. It could also be that she just had a super strong suspicion that William had done something to Maria in the barn. Maria's young brother had given testimony at the trial. Maybe he'd actually seen more than he had said and had told Anne about it, so she made up the dream reasoning to protect him. It reminds me of the Greenbrier ghost story I covered in season one, where the ghost of the victim appeared to her mother to tell her that her husband had killed her. In that story, I feel like her mother just knew something was not right, so she invented the ghost story. It could be challenging for women to get men to listen to them, after all, in the Victorian era. If they needed to invent some supernatural support to back up their suspicions, so be it. There are other theories, but most agree that none actually hold water at the end of the day. One is that William was involved with a smuggling gang out of London who murdered Maria due to threat of exposure, but evidence to support William's involvement in the gang at all is scant at best. Another theory connects William to forger and serial killer Thomas Griffiths Wainwright, and another suggests a band of gypsy women killed Maria. These last two are more modern theories presented in the 1967 work of Donald McCormick, The Red Barn Mystery, though he seems to have a solid history of unsighted sources in his body of work, so these theories are often not considered as serious. Countless retellings, productions, and songs have been made about the case, even as recent as 1991, plus references in a televised dramatization as recent as 2018. I'm curious to know what you think about this case, though. If you head over to Instagram or YouTube at A Good Night for a Murder, you can let me know there. I've posted some sketches of Maria and William, as well as some photos of case memorabilia, including the book, over on Instagram. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website, agoodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Good Night for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. For the bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler Tier Patreons for this episode, I have another story of a criminal whose skin was used to make a book, this time though, by his own request. Listen through the outro music to hear a short preview of this Patreon bonus content. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. 
is Kim, and to accompany episode 35 about the Red Barn murder, I have another story of a criminal whose skin was used to make a book, this time though by his own request. This is the story of James Allen. As mentioned in the intro, this story is the biography of one James Allen, who had many aliases, as related to the warden on his deathbed, which was then bound in his own skin by his own request. As such, my primary source for this was the biography itself. Not the actual human skin book, of course, but you can read the entire thing online. We'll talk more about where the book actually is now and how it came to be there later, but first, let's get into the story of James Allen. James Allen was born November 16, 1809 in Lancaster, Massachusetts. His mother died when he was three, after which his father brought him to live with his grandparents. He never saw his father again. After his grandparents died, he lived with, quote, several different persons who must not have made much of an impression on him as he didn't bother to name any of them. He did attend school and worked farming jobs in the summer. When he was a teenager, he attempted to strike out on his own, during which time he worked several different jobs. During this period, it sounds like he was indeed trying to eke out an honest living, but people kept taking advantage of him. For example, he relates one instance where somebody paid him in some counterfeit bills, which he then tried to use and got in trouble for. Another time, he was asked to transport some goods to someone that were stolen, though he did not know they were stolen, of course. Or so he claims. In 1824, when he was about 15, he thought he would apprentice as a shipbuilder. But in October of that year, he stole a bolt of cloth from a ship and got caught. This was the first time he'd be sent to prison. He was sentenced to six months imprisonment, and it does not sound like this stint inspired him to turn his life around, unfortunately. He was not surrounded by very good role models in prison after all. He mentioned that during the six months, one of his cellmates was a man who was, quote, charged with burning his grandmother and causing her death. The pair became friends and tried to escape, but they were caught. Alan takes the credit for doing most of the work in the escape, but his companion took the brunt of the blame. Because Alan was so young, the jailers didn't suspect him of being capable enough to execute.